Hello and welcome to The Long View Quick Looks. This is the first episode of what's going to be a twice-monthly review show, if everything goes right, featuring myself, uh, Jeff Gamble, here as uh, the host of The Long View, and longtime contributor and friend of the show, Lloyd Keller. Say hello, Lloyd. Hello, Lloyd. There we go. That's a, That joke is about as old as time itself, Lloyd. Well done. <laughs> Definitely older than me, that's for sure. <laughs> nice. Not nice. as old as you, but uh, that's okay. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, kids these days. Um, so this is a show that uh, uh, we're going to be starting up because, quite frankly, uh, there's a lot of games that uh, Lloyd and I play. There's a lot of games that are sent to uh, the Longview for review. Uh, there are games that I request to look at. Uh, and uh, because of the success of the show, which is uh, in thanks really to all of you out there listening... Um, I really kind of needed a different format in order to share reviews for new games. So this is kind of the reason why uh, in the Longview feed you're going to be starting to see these shows. So these shows are going to be numbered. This is episode one. And they're going to be called Longview Quick Looks. So hopefully that will give you a heads up as to what kind of content you're going to be receiving. The typical long view is still going to be happening. That's going to be a show where it's going to feature one game, a guest, or two discussing that game in great detail. We're going to strip the reviews out of long views, and we're going to be putting them back into new episodes uh, that you're going to be hearing, starting with this one. So we're kind of taking the content that we're delivering and we're putting it into two different packages. And it's also going to allow me to get a different voice on the show um, to kind of, you know, spice things up a little bit and give an alternate perspective to my own so that, you know, you get to hear more than one person's opinion of any particular game. So the next episode of The Long View to be released is going to be about the game London. And there will be a review in that one because I promised the publisher that I would include the review to Onward to Venus, another Martin Wallace game, in the London episode. So after that, we're going to be having the review episode split from the Longview episode, so stay tuned for that. And thanks for listening, and thanks for taking the time to listen to this little rambling discussion as I kind of outline what the mission and the goals are for the new show, Longview Quick Look. So without any further ado, uh, we're going to dive right in here and start talking about the first game reviewed tonight. So the first game up for discussion today is a new game from Tasty Minstrel Games, and this is called Harbor. Uh, The designer is listed as Scott Alms, who is uh, quite well known for some other games uh, that he's done as well. Uh, The Tiny Epic uh, series kind of springs to mind. Uh, And the artist is listed as a a duo, which is Max Holiday and Rob Lundy. Uh, The game is for one to four players, and it's for ages eight and up, and it's about 60 minutes, although I find the game actually uh, plays more quickly than that, wouldn't you say, Lloyd? Yeah, I've only had a chance to play this a handful of times, and each time was easily under an hour. A two-player game, um, I think Carter and I knocked it out uh, in probably about 35 minutes. Right, right, yeah, and I find that uh, two- and three-player games are, are over at a very nice pace, you know, it's not too soon, it's not too late. Um, you know, it doesn't overstay its welcome, uh, but I, I haven't really had it take a full 60 minutes yet. Now, I haven't uh, played four-player but once, um, but uh, I think that that's a generous playtime estimate. 
Um, and since you uh, mentioned Carter, uh, who is my son, uh, you played the game with him. So uh, Carter's actually joining us tonight for the first time here on the show. I thought that would be fun. So Carter, can you say hello to everybody out there? Hi. There we go. So Carter, uh, you have had the chance to play Harbor with me, with Mr. Lloyd, and with me and uh, your mama. Um, and so this is a game that you know, you've played quite a few times. And so let's talk a little bit about first what the game is. Um, at the start of the game, each player is going to get a sort of a personality card. Now there's a sort of a generic side that you can use if you want everybody to kind of have the same kind of abilities. And then there's a, a flip side to every card, which is really nice, with a sort of a unique, distinctive personality. And these are all kind of fantasy kind of people. Uh, you know, you, you could be just a, a regular person. You could be like a dock master. You could be a merchant. Um, but you, you know, could also be, uh, you know, something completely different. You could be, you know, a travel agent who is a witch. Um, you know, you could be a, a, a sort of a, a knoll, you know, you could be a goblin. There's all these different kinds of uh, races and creatures and, and whatnot. That's really quite fun. And each of them is going to give you a, a specific little advantage. Um, every one of these characters has a sort of base ability, which is build a building. That's kind of everybody's base ability. And everybody also usually has an ability to gather some resources because this is at heart a game we're going to be gathering resources, storing those resources as best you can, and then turning them in for money in order to pay the purchase price of buildings that are going to be in a display in front of you. And those buildings are going to be worth points. And the first person to build, what is it, Lloyd, four buildings or something like that? The fourth building, uh, it signals the end of the game. Four okay? or five, I think it's um, four. Yeah, four buildings, I believe, is signals the end of the game. So this display of buildings is put in the middle of the table, and there's going to be a number of buildings equal to the number of players, uh, and then a couple extras that you always have a nice variety of buildings to kind of choose from. These buildings are all going to do different things for you. They might uh, allow you to kind of get discounts on something. They might... Uh, allow you to boost um, kind of gathering of resources, you know, so you could go to the quarry and you could get more stone than you normally would by going to your own sort of little production building. Um, you might be able to go and trade. So I can trade in like three of one type of resource for five of another kind of resource or something of that nature. And the reason you're doing all of this trading and whatnot is because the game has a, a nifty little market mechanism that I think is probably one of the most interesting parts of the game. And the way the market works is there are tokens that depict the different types of resources. So we have fish, we have stone, we have wood, we have livestock, which is a nice little pig and cow little symbol. And so these resources are going to be kind of what drives the game. And what you're trying to do is not gather resources to fill a recipe to buy a building. You're trying to gather resources to sell them so that you have enough money to buy the buildings. The buildings are all need to be purchased with money. And the way it works is uh, the first item in the market is going to be uh, sellable for $2. The uh, second item in the market is sellable for three, the third is for four, and the fifth is for five. But the caveat being, if you want to sell a good, let's say that wood is in the second position, which means it's worth $3, okay? If you have three wood, or four or five wood, you can sell wood, but you're still only going to get $3 for however much wood you had. So the optimal thing to do is to sell three wood, for $3. Because if you sell wood, you're going to get $3. And if you had four, well, you just lost that fourth. That one is kind of gone due to like, you know, corruption at the dock side is kind of the way they explain it in the rule book. Well, 
what you're trying to do is spend your resources to gain money. And every time you make a sale, in our example, if I sold wood for $3, wood then kind of drops out of this lineup and everything is going to shift to the right and slide to the next higher number if possible. And so the market is going to continually rotate. And what was once super valuable, once somebody sells it, now becomes the cheapest thing on the market, the, the, the thing that's worth the least. And so a lot of the interesting choices in this game are about how to time the market so that when it comes my time to sell, not only do I have enough resources to sell of that particular type, but... I'm going to get the most bang for my buck out of it. I'm not going to waste a lot of resource. And I have to make sure that I don't wait too long because if I wait too long and someone else sells that type of resource, well, now instead of getting 4 or $5 for it, I'm going to get 2 which is really going to hose me. So the, the game has a lot of tension because of the market system and the way that works. So um, what you're going to do on your turn is you are going to take your pawn and you are going to perform an action. The pawns are these neat little wooden markers. They kind of look a little bit, don't they, Lloyd? They kind of look like, uh, who's the, the, they look like Krusty the Clown, though, don't they? <laughs> no, they're, I think they're supposed think to they're be supposed, goblins. I know, but they look but, like Krusty the Crown, the Clown. I keep like, hey, hey, like he's got the crazy hair and everything. Anyway. Wow, now that you say that, that's <laughs> no, all I see. This is, I know, it's Krusty the Clown. Wow. So anyway, you take your little Krusty the Clown. You ruined that game for me now. <laughs> You take your Krusty the Clown and you are going to put him on your card to activate your building, which will gather you a resource or two, or it will allow you to sell resources to build a building, right? Or you can take your Krusty and put him on any of the buildings in the display, and that will allow you to activate that building's ability. So perhaps there's one that says, hey, turn in three fish and get five wood. And right now, wood is sitting at the highest position worth $5. I only have one wood, um, but boy, if I sell my three fish, which are sitting in the second position, not worth a whole lot of money, then all of a sudden I'll be able to rocket my wood pile up to the top, and then maybe on the next turn I'll be able to sell it and make a lot of money. So that's kind of a little bit of an idea. You can also go to one of your opponent's home cards or a card that they have built from the display. And you can use it, but if you do that, you have to give them a resource. You have to cough up a resource to them. And so that can be you know, something that you have to sort of consider. Because if I send my Krusty to, to Carter's building, I'm gonna have to give up one of the resources that I've been collecting and, and oh, well now that's gonna knock me from the three stone I need because stone's in the three position down to two. So now I won't be able to sell stone. Ah, what do I do? So there's some tough decisions to make in the game. There are also some icons that are going to help you. There are these kind of icons that are listed on the cards, and some are listed on your sort of character card as well. And they could be either gold coins, or they could be anchor symbols, or they could be a symbol of a little house, which is supposed to be a warehouse. There's also a top hat, sort of like a, a, you know, a nice like Abraham Lincoln hat. The top hat allows you to use someone else's building without paying that resource cost. So that's usually, you know, for me at least, Lloyd, that's a priority. If I can get a top hat card, I'm going to get one right away um, because that way I don't have to pay that resource, right? The anchors are really nifty because the anchor icons will allow you to gather extra resources. So, for example, the quarry card allows you to get, uh, gather one stone. So if I take my crusty and I go to the quarry, 
I'm going to get one stone. whoop de do. But if I have two cards in my display that have anchor symbols on them, I'm going to get one stone per anchor symbol. So now I'm going to get more stones. So that's going to make it a much more worthwhile action. Then there are um, the gold coins. And the way the gold coins work is when you go to build a building, each gold coin that you have is going to give you a discount on a building card. So if a card is going to cost you $8, but you only have goods that you can sell in the five and three position for, I'm sorry, the five and two position for $7, well, if you've got a gold coin in your display, all of a sudden now you can afford that card. So those cards are really the bulk of your victory points. That's really it. So it's really important that you get those cards because every card has a cost and then it has a victory point value. And, uh, you know, obviously for the most part, the more expensive the card, the better the victory points. Not always, but that's usually the way it works. So um, that's kind of an overview of the general gameplay and what the goals are of the game. So now that we've said that, let's talk a little bit about, you know, what we think of it. So uh, the first thing that I want to do is talk about the components. Um, I think for a game of this price point, the components are great. There is a huge number of those character cards in the box that gives a lot of variety and a lot of pleasant surprises. There are tons. There's like a whole deck of cards. How many are in there? Like 60 or something? I don't even know how many there are, but there's a lot of them. There's a ton of building cards, and these building cards are going to really, really help you um, keep the game fresh because you're only going to see so many of them per game. In addition, uh, there's also cards that you can add in, like a little mini expansion that kind of give you like a little goal. It's like if you end up with uh, this many wood by the end of the game, you score this many victory points. And there's one for each resource. So you kind of randomly distribute those at the start of the game. And that can add to the fun a little bit as well because it can give you a little bit of surprise scoring at the end. Now, that's kind of the, the general overview of the gameplay. So, uh, Lloyd, first I'm going to start with you, and then, and then I'm, I want to see what Carter has to say about this. So what were your impressions of the game? How did you think it worked? Um, you know, what was the fun factor in it? What were the problems with it? Uh, go ahead and, and kind of tell us what you thought. Uh, well, what I really enjoyed about this game is the fact that you've got a lot of player interaction right off the bat. Uh, you've got blocking because there can only ever be one character on a card at a time. Um, because if Krusty ever meets because himself, if Krusty that's, meets himself, that's a world, paradox. That the world's going to end. Right. And Doc told us that, and then suddenly we'll start to disappear in the photograph. <laughs> but yeah. Okay, I'm and sorry. And next Go thing ahead. you know, Sideshow Bob is the one that's running the show, and know, just everything's done now. That's right. <laughs> but I also really appreciate the way the market works because, for exactly the reasons you said, I could have resources that are going to make me a lot of money. And right before my turn, somebody could go to market and sell everything I wanted to sell. And now I don't have enough money to buy the card I wanted to. Or maybe they bought the card I was looking at. So, I mean, there's tons of interaction in uh, just the small game. You're blocking one another. You're kind of messing with those resources. Um, You do have to be concerned, right? You you have to be concerned concerned with other players. About what the other players are doing. Not to mention, some of the cards even let you interact with other players. Uh, One of them, which is the Abbey, when you go to the Abbey, you get one of every resource, and everybody else at the table gets a resource of their choice. Right, right. So, you know, even the cards themselves, uh, that's just one example I thought of, uh, do have some interaction built into them. 
Now, the fact that the cards come out at random, uh, there was one time that I played it with Carter, and most of the cards that were out were just so expensive, it took us forever to be able to buy yeah, that first yeah. card. Or sometimes you get cards that there is just no trading going on whatsoever. Yeah, they're resource so poor. So yeah. that resource generation is gone. And the only way to get better cards and get newer cards out is you somehow got to buy some of these some of these cards out of the center, even though you might not want what they do. And you're going to open up something that somebody else might be able to do on their turn. So yeah, lots of interaction to this game. I really enjoyed it. Um, I like its quick play time, and yet it still has enough going on that it, it, it makes you take a, a few seconds and think about what would be the best thing for me to do in this second. And uh, maybe I shouldn't have done that now that I see uh, this player's getting ready to go to market, and that might have been a waste of a turn for me, you know, that right, kind of thing. Right, right. You can kind of play long range, though. Like if, if you know... If somebody, if I'm stockpiling wood and I'm getting ready to sell it and you sell it before I can and you get the $5 for it, now wood's worth two, I don't have to sell it. Like if I can bring my other goods up to a decent value, I can kind of play the long game, keep that wood and wait for the market to come back up on it. And, you know, sometimes that patience can pay off. Um, but yeah, I, I like what you said about the interaction. There's a whole lot of interaction right off the get-go. And I like that you have to be very concerned with what the other players are doing. So um, now, Carter, you have played this game at least four or five times. Uh, we've played it together a couple of times. You played it with Mr. Lloyd. We played it with your mama. Um, what do you think about this game? Because you have played a lot of games. We just played Mythotopia earlier today, right? Yeah. Yep, Daddy was dominant. You yes. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you think of this one? Um, I really do like it. I like the mechanics of the game. Um, I like mostly just the game in general. It's a great game. Um, I think one of my favorite parts about the game is the how if someone like basically if you, you have basically five wood and someone takes basically sells all their wood and it goes back down to two, you can I like the subtraction cards and how you can subtract that woods back to down like a two, which it is, and you can add and you can add up to another card, and that can get you your two woods, and you won't have to pay really all of your five wood, and you could also get a uh, five stone, and that would be a really good advantage for you. So I really appreciate those cards. So you're talking about the cards where you can trade resources, like trade in two wood or three wood and get five of something else. Are those ones you're talking about? Yes. Yeah, yeah, we those are definitely handy. Amount of wood and getting that amount of a different kind of resource. It can kind of get you out of a hole, can't you? Yeah. yeah. Now, I, I noticed the last game you and I played, you were really big on the warehouse cards. And we haven't really talked about the warehouse icon. Do you remember what the little warehouse uh, symbols let you do when you sell? Um. Yes, when you sell, if you have a warehouse, you can keep one of those resources. So basically, if you have five... If you have five fish and you only need to pay four fish, you can actually keep one fish. And you can do that with other resources if you have any more warehouses. Very nice, yeah. Yeah, and that's really, that can be a surprisingly big advantage in this game because usually whatever it is that you didn't sell is just lost to you. But with those warehouses, it allows you to hold on to some goods. And they can be useful for two reasons. Number one, 
it immediately lets you start rebuilding your stockpile. But number two, if you don't have any top hat cards, it actually gives you that one resource that you can give to somebody else for using a really powerful card that they really want to use. So I think that uh, those warehouses, uh, Carter has used those very effectively in games that we played because he gets to save those resources. Um, and I know you're a big fan of the coins too, aren't yes, you? Yes, I love the coins. Yeah, yeah, the coins are nifty. That's how he beat me. I cards for people. <laughs> yes. Yep, yep, that's how he beat you, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Nothing like being beaten by a small child. So anyway, um, <laughs> well, Carter. Nothing like that at all. Nothing like that at all. Well, listen, I appreciate you stopping by and telling us your thoughts about Harbor. And so would you say that this is a game that you think kids who like games would be able to play? Or do you think it's, uh, what do you think, Carter, as far as like how complicated the game is? Now, you're a little unusual because you play a lot of, you know, kind of, you've been playing games since you were a little kid. But think about like the kids in your class. Do you think that this is a game that you would pull out with like an average fifth grader, like a 10, 11 year old? Or do you think this is too complicated or do you think it's too easy? What would you say to that? Um, to be honest, I think most people could figure this out. They might not do good on their first couple of tries, but I think most people my age would figure it out. Um, though I wouldn't really suggest putting it to my class because um, last year in fourth grade I brought in a game. I think it might have been third grade, but I brought in one of our board games. Right. Um, everyone, t- everyone went to Star Wars Monopoly. I know. They, I know. they were all staring at the they all staring at how to D two winging. Press the button again. Press the button again. Right. They weren't even playing the game. They just wanted to hear R two D two. Yeah, right? they wanted to It's kind of sad. Short attention span theater. Exactly. That's awesome. I tried to teach some of the game. They're like, "I'm gonna go play Monopoly." I'm like, "Why would you do that? Why would you play Monopoly?" No. Um. That was someone else. No, no, no. I know. I'm. I'm asking you. Why? Why would a kid want to play Monopoly? Hmm. I do not know. I do not know either. I right. don't know. <laughs> well, Carter, thank you very much for stopping by and, and being on the show tonight. And maybe we'll get a chance to hear your thoughts and ideas about some other games in the future because you are sort of my gamer kid at the moment, right? Yes. Beautiful. All right. Well, thank you, Carter. So, Lloyd, um, one of the things that uh, I wanted to talk about with this game, though, was one of the issues that I have with it. There's two, there's two problems I have with the game. The first one is this. You already mentioned one, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. If you get an unfriendly flop of cards where there's really nothing that's going to be resource generating, this can then, maybe that's why it says 60 minutes. Like the game could become a slog if you have a flop of cards in the middle and you can't do anything better than get one or maybe two resources on your turn. I, I really think that that's a problem. And so. I wish there was something in the design. Uh, I mentioned Mythotopia not just because Carter and I played it, but because Martin Wallace had this idea with the victory point cards that he uses in that game where there are three cards that are out every single game. And then all the rest of them are variable. You don't know what they're going to be. And I kind of wonder if if Harbor should have had like maybe that Abbey card. You know, take one of everything and one person, you know, and everybody else gets one thing of their choice. Like if there was something like that, so that every game you could be guaranteed to have uh, something that's going to keep the game flowing, even if another player buys that card, don't you think? Yeah, and I mean, they, they do recommend for the first couple games of Harbor a suggested setup that 
has a couple of beginning buildings. I'm looking at it right now. Instead of doing random buildings. Right. But, you know, even a seasoned gamer who is familiar with this game, like you said, if, if there's nothing good in the flop that's really going to work for you early on, it, it drags the game time almost to a halt. Yeah, yeah. Because, like you said, a lot of these characters, and I looked through them earlier while you were talking about them, a lot of the characters only get one resource. Right. There's a few that, you know, are the exception where they get something specific. Like um, uh, one of the characters gets a wood and then a resource of your choice. Right. Or another one might get a fish and a resource of your choice. But even that, that's that's still only one resource of each. Right. And it just, yeah, it can slow the game down a lot. Yeah, and then I think it goes into an area where it doesn't want to be. You know, I, I think the game is is meant to be fairly light, fairly fast, and I think that you know when you get into that kind of slog, it it kind of that's when I start to get like a little frustrated. Like there's a frustration level, right? Yeah. Um, the other problem that I had with the game though um, was I, I really, I really think this game is made to be played with three players and 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 i'll explain why a two-player game is is very much kind of a zero-sum affair it's kind of back and forth um a four-player game that market is so fluid it can be almost impossible to try to predict what the market's gonna be when it comes around to your turn or predict you know what what's going to be in demand or you know, and and it almost becomes random at that point because things can change so much from the time, you know, you finish your turn until it comes around again that I think, you know, you can really kind of be sort of stuck, you know. And then the default strategy just seems to be gather as many resources as you can, get everything up as high as you can, and then cross your fingers and hope that when it comes around to you that those things are still worth something, right? And... That kind of, to me, takes a lot of the fun out of the game because I kind of feel like the fun in this game is market manipulation and market prediction. And when that's kind of taken away, then it just becomes, well, who's, who's more efficient at gathering resources than somebody else? Because, you know, if I've got everything pegged out at five and four or whatnot, you know, that I've collected, I think you can collect up to six. And then what happens is... Um, you know, if I have everything pegged up top, well, then, yeah, I'll be able to sell whatever I need and I'll be able to buy a card and, and whatever. But it, it, it sort of removes that whole element of the game that I really appreciated. I'd be curious what you would say about that. Well, I, I haven't really thought of it that way because I've only played it just a handful of times. I know I played it once or twice with Carter two player and I think you and I and Carter yeah. have mm-hmm. played it three player. So I, I've never personally played it four player, um, but... I can definitely see how just the chaos of what can happen over three other players' turns before it comes back to you with that market. Right. Um, Now, all resources are visible to everybody, so I can see at any time what everybody at the table is sitting on. Right. So, I mean, there could be a little bit of planning, but... I think a lot of it's going to have to do with also that flop and what cards come out. Because if there's a lot of high-priced cards, right. the players at the table are going to want to sell their fours and their fives resources to get the most money. 
If the cards that are getting flopped are, you know, sixes, sevens, and eights, a little bit cheaper, well, then you can probably get away with, uh, you know, maybe selling your fours and your threes, or maybe your fives and your threes, but not... Right, your fives and your twos or or something Or your fives and your twos, but not your two best ones. Right, right. So, yeah, but as well as some of those higher cards, though... It really does force you to try and do uh, like three different resources to pay for them. Right. Because a four and a five is only going to give you nine bucks. If you're going for an 11 or a 12, you have to sell. Unless you have coins. Unless you have coins. Unless you have coins, yeah. Um, but again, that all depends on that flop. And yes. And what's able to come out. So, uh, you know, I think you and I both agree that we we like the game. We enjoy the game. It's a lot of game in a little box, which has been a recent trend, especially with Scott Alms. Um, I really appreciate that about his designs. Um, However, uh, you know, I I think that there's a couple of little tweaks that could have been made that that would have made the game even better. And I I would have liked to have seen that. So while I do appreciate that they have the recommended beginner game setup, to me, the variety is what keeps the game fresh. But the variety is also what can kind of shoot it in the foot. I think it kind of needs one card or... You know, something like that. Or, or, you know, maybe make it so that the starting characters, you can get two resources or something. Now, there are some that, you know, will let you get one resource plus one for every this symbol you have. Or you get a stone plus one of your choice. I mean, there are some characters that do that. But overall, I think you got to have some buildings out there that are going to give you an exchange or are going to give you greater value for, you know, your crusty placement for it to really work the way it needs to work. So um, that's kind of what I would have to say about that. So uh, that would be our take on Harbor by Tasty Minstrel Games and Scott Alms. So the next game we're going to talk about tonight is a game that was sent uh, to me by uh, the Mage Company, which makes the game called Twelve Realms. Uh, This is a game that is uh, uh, absolutely beautiful to look at. i got to say that right off the bat. Um, And it is uh, designed by uh, Ignacio Corraro. Corral? Oh, geez. I'm totally butchering, uh, butchering this, I'm sure. Uh, but it's Ignacio Correo. Well, let's go with Ignacio Correo. Uh, there are lots of artists who are credited with this game. Uh, Michael Andresekis, uh, Marvin Are, Ignacio Correo, uh, Jerome Yacinto, there's one that I think I got right, uh, Ginny Rosales, uh, Carlo Rosales. Um, so there's a, a host of artists who have uh, contributed to this, and this is put out by... Uh, Mage Company. It's for one to six players. It was originally published in 2010, but it's just kind of making its way over here uh, via Kickstarter. And so they asked if I would like to take a look at the game, and, and I was happy to do so because the theme is really kind of fun in this. So basically what you have is you have these uh, fantasy realms, okay? And, and it borrows a lot of the tropes of typical fantasy stories. And the realms are going to be populated by all of the characters that you remember. So there, you know, you've got characters like, uh, you know, Robin Hood, and and you've got characters like, uh, 
Uh, wasn't wasn't there like Puss in Boots in there? And no, there um, was Siegfried. Uh, oh, Siegfried, yes, Siegfried. And the Nutcracker. Yes, the Nutcracker's in there. Yeah, Snow which White. is totally awesome. Yeah, and so uh, what what you end up having is each of the players is is going to be kind of controlling uh, one of these you know famous childhood story characters, and you are going to be kind of moving throughout the realms, trying to defend the, the, the realms from attack from various monsters, okay? And so the monsters are going to be kind of coming into the realms at the end of, like, each round, basically, and you have to try to defeat them. And the way you defeat them in this game is you have to kind of fill a recipe. Wouldn't you kind of say it's like you're going to like fill a recipe of, of what the monster's weakness is? Yeah, that's, that's really how they explain it, that the monsters have weaknesses and your traits in some way defeat their weaknesses. Absolutely. So like if you have like a really sluggish monster and you're a character with speed, then you're going to be really you know instrumental at defeating it, right? Um, so what you need to do is you need to kind of gather little hero characters to Together uh, at a location, one of the realms, in order to attack this monster. And if you can bring together all of the traits, qualities, characteristics, whatever you want to call them, that you need, you're going to be able to defeat that monster and thus keeping you know the realm safe. So the game is called 12 Realms, but basically what you're doing is you're starting off with the base game comes with these uh, lovely miniatures, really nice individual sculpt miniatures. And it also comes with, um, I think it's three boards, right? Three, uh, four. Four. Four different boards. Four yep. different realms, okay? So it's called 12 Realms, but you only get four, but they're already planning expansions and whatnot. And what you're going to be doing is you're going to be putting out a certain number of these realm boards depending on the number of players. And you're then going to have to move about the realms, which adds another kind of element into it, which is movement. And then you're going to have to try and go to where the trouble is. You're going to have to try to gather people together and then defeat the monsters. At a certain point in time, if you don't uh, defeat the monsters that are attacking the realm, then what's going to happen is the threat level is going to increase. And as the threat, the threat level reaches certain kind of milestones, bad things are going to happen to you. So, for example, uh, when the threat level reaches, what is it, 16 or something like that? Then I believe it's the, the big boss monster is going to come out. Okay, He's going to come out, and you're going to have a really hard time defeating him. Uh, but you know he's going to be the big bad that you got to kind of get rid of if you want to truly win the game. Um, if the threat level ever reaches a certain number, however, you lose. Okay? So... The game has a lot of the same kind of feel as like a pandemic style game. What you have is, you, you know, you, instead of the world with disease cubes and having to move to different parts of the world to treat the diseases, you have the realms and you're having to move among the realms to defeat the monsters who are threatening to over, overwhelm or overrun the individual realms. And so... It, it kind of has that feel to it. And then after you've kind of done your actions, you're going to reveal cards, yes? And those cards are going to tell you what monsters to put out. And all of the monsters, are like they're different. They have like little individual counters for them so that you know what monster is what. And the counters have like little icons on them to kind of let you know what their vulnerabilities are. Uh, there's a whole sort of iconography uh, that goes with this game. And it can be a little bit daunting at first trying to figure out what everything means. But once you do, I didn't have that much of a problem with it. Um, and then 
you know, that's basically the heart of the game. You know, you have to move around. You have to gather what you need either in heroes with their innate talents or uh, wasn't there a way you, you could go like to, what was it, like the town or, or whatever, couldn't you? Yeah, every single one of the realms has uh, some sort of city located on it. And right. branching out from that city are five uh, different like sub-areas of that realm. And that's where these monsters pop up. If you are in the city, you're allowed to spend, I believe it's your swiftness tokens. And that lets you draw cards off of what they call the, the city decks or the merchant decks right, or right. the item deck or whatever it is. And that can give you... Um, tokens. Different... Well, no, it can give you different weapons. It can give you uh, little spells and potions. It can give you... Like, it gives you a horse sometimes that gives you extra movement. Right, right. Um, so some of them are other characters like uh, watch guards and knights that with themselves come with one of these trait tokens and therefore give you more that you can do on your turn. Right. Uh, some of them are just kind of a once and done. Um, they call them Aegeus cards. They have a little fire symbol on them and you basically burn the card and you use it once and it's done. Right. Um, but yeah, they, they, they are all used to kind of beef up your character to assist in some way. Um, to defeat the monsters. To, to defeat right. the monsters. Yeah. Right. And so that's, you know, that's one of the things that is really, really kind of necessary for the game. Because a lot of times the mix of characters you might not, you know, you might have, might not have all of the things that you need to defeat the monsters. And so therefore you kind of need to go to these markets in order to get these, these token, I, I call them tokens, cards, um, you know, to kind of beef up your abilities uh, or almost get like NPCs, you know, uh, from, from my role playing days that go along with you yep. and, you know, help you out in the missions and, and whatnot. So uh, that's kind of, you know, the, the, the main engine of the game. And so... This, to me, sounds like something that I should really enjoy because I really enjoy Pandemic, and I enjoy that Pandemic engine. Um, playing the game, though, I had a few areas that really kind of concerned me. And uh, there, uh, let me kind of try to break down uh, the areas that I had, and, then, and I want to hear what you, what you have to say about those, and then let me know if you had any of your own. So... Basically, one of the, the problems that I have is that this game does not seem to have an internal clock. Now, I've mentioned Pandemic quite a bit because I think a lot of these co-op games really sort of owe a, a lot to Pandemic. Because that was kind of the game that sort of started it all. Where it's players against a, an AI. You know, a, a form of, of an AI that is going to be thwarting them and standing in their way. And in Pandemic, there are a number of different timers on this game. So if you have too many outbreaks, uh, you know, if you uh, run out of uh, the draw pile in the player card deck, um, you know, too many epidemics, you know, all of these things are going to have it so that you're going to lose the game. This game has something similar, which is that threat track, right? And if the threat track ever reaches a certain critical level, you're going to lose the game, right? And that's 20. The problem is, is that the, the timer is always on in Pandemic. You, you, you know you have a finite amount of time in order to try to meet your goals. However, in this game, we can run into a situation, and I did run into a situation, where we were doing such an awesome job of keeping the realm clean and clear from monsters. We had basically 
defeated most of the monsters that were on the board, um, whether by luck or by good play or a fortunate flop in the markets, whatever. And we kind of were stuck. Like we, It took us a few minutes to realize that, okay, you have to beat the boss monster, right, in order to win the game. But the boss monster doesn't come out until the threat level reaches, I believe it's 16. So we were kind of stuck at threat level 11. And it wasn't going to advance unless we let monsters live. And that to me was like very counterintuitive to the narrative of the game. Like why would I allow these creatures to continue to roam through the countryside so that I could artificially reach a certain threat level so that the big boss monster would come out and then we could try to take care of it. So I kind of didn't like that. I didn't like the fact that the, the sort of timer of the game stalled and that we had to do something so counterintuitive to get the, the timer going again. So that was a bit of a problem that I had with it. Um, the, the other issue uh, that I had with the game, uh, you know, quite frankly, was the fact that in the same way that you can luck out like we did with a great market draw and a great mix of characters that are meeting the needs of the monsters, you can also kind of get slammed by not having what you need and not being able to get what you need. And you're giving up your movement, basically your swiftness, right, Mm -hmm. to draw those cards, which means then you can't really go anywhere. And then before you know it, that threat track reaches 20 and you've lost. So the game seems really swingy to me. Whereas in Pandemic, I always kind of feel like I can wrangle it somehow. I can control it a little bit. Like, you know, I have some foreknowledge with those cards. You know, okay, well, if if we get another one of, you know, uh, these cards, I know that the 10 cities that we've just flopped and they're probably, they're going to be hotspots again because they're going to go back into the deck on the top. And I got to be prepared for that. And, And there's really not anything with this game that I could do that with. So that, that was a bit of a concern to me. And then finally, despite the really light kind of fun theme, which to me is totally family friendly, like playing this with uh, my girls, my friend Jim played this game. I loaned it to him. He played it with his two girls, uh, one of whom is I think like seven or eight and the other of whom is like 12, 13. Those girls loved it because they love the characters, they love the art, they love the theme. But the game kind of goes on sometimes a little long for, for what it is. And Jim said that, like, you know, his youngest, you know, started to lose attention a little bit. But I think that there is a sweet spot for this game. And I think that that sort of preteen audience is really perfect for this. Because, you know, kids definitely have responded well to this game. But for me, some of the holes that I see, the, the little things like I've talked about that have kind of bothered me a little bit those are the things that kind of keep it from being a game that I'm going to suggest to my adult play group. Hey, let's, let's give this one a shot. Um, so, you know, what were your impressions? And, and, and I also wanted you to talk a little bit, you had talked to me uh, pre-production here about some of the, the expansion stuff and you had some kind of uh, comments and, and things. No, maybe that was Jim. I was, yeah, I was talking to Jim. Jim about it. But tell me about your experience with it because you actually played it solo, yes? I did. Um, I, I tried a couple games solo and just because I'm the music geek, my first character I played with was the Nutcracker. <laughs> and, you know, I was whistling uh, Sugar Plum Fairy and, you know, March of the Wooden Soldiers while I'm playing and 
the interesting thing that I, I think you forgot to mention is that in order to defeat that big boss monster, every realm has three special items that you have to collect. And in order to collect these special items, you actually have to wait for them to get flopped out of what, you know, is essentially um, the Epidemic deck like you have in Pandemic. Um, this is just the Realm deck. So if you don't ever get those three items that pop out, uh, you're going to have a really tough time being able to hold everybody off and, yeah. and kind of defeat the, the big boss. So I know you said that you didn't think that there was that kind of built-in timer. I found with a solo play, it's much more tense because you're in the position where you have to be the solo player that not only takes care of every monster that pops up on the board, you're also trying to run around and gather stuff. And if the stuff doesn't come out when you need it to, you get overrun by the monsters and all of a sudden that boss comes out and it's like, oh my goodness, now I have to try and deal with the boss, but I can't. And uh, yeah, the game, every solo game I played ended way too quickly, I thought. <laughs> my first game, I literally had four turns. And that was it. And I was dead. Um, we got overrun very quickly. But, you know, I, I kind of appreciated that, too, because, again, to compare this to Pandemic, in Pandemic, you're challenged with trying to find uh, five cards of matching color cities to be able to get a cure. Well, in this game, you know, kind of lighter, a bit more kid-friendly, you have to get three things to be able to essentially not cure, but be allowed to go after that big boss. Uh, one of the other things that can happen and I didn't try playing with these because I was just doing a very basic uh, couple of solo games. But there are these black fortresses that pop out mm -hmm. like about a third of the way through that threat track. I want to say maybe around like six or seven these right. black fortresses can pop out. I don't remember out. exactly when, but yeah. And they just add another entire element um, as far as you know what you can do in the game and, and just something else that kind of blocks you in the game I don't even remember exactly what they do because I read about them and went well I already lost to a bunch of monsters <laughs> with a nutcracker I don't think I'm ready to add these things in yet yeah what's your sugar plum fairy what's doing for you now fairy? Uh, she's dancing a pirouette in the corner very sadly right now um, oh my goodness, she's but tasty, I mean, I'm it, sure. It, it did include, there There were some like beefed up monsters that were part of a Kickstarter expansion. Right, right. And when they came out, uh, their cards actually were made to look like stone and they were considered petrified. And you needed to expend uh, twice the symbols that were shown on them. So if you needed um, two swiftness to defeat it, you would actually need to spend four swiftness right. to really get them off the board. So, I mean, there were a couple of little extra things that could make the game more difficult. I found in a solo game, I don't think I needed anything uh, to, yeah. to add to the level of difficulty. Yeah, I remember Jim talking about all the expansion stuff that was in there. And, and you know, it's one of those things where, you know, the, the, it's really nice to have options in a game. You know, I'm thinking about even a game that I reviewed on the last show, Forge War. It's nice to have options. But sometimes I think you can get lost in options because, you know, that there. sometimes there's just one too many things, you know? It's like that old movie Amadeus, you know, too many notes, you know, which one do you want me to cut? I don't know, just cut a few and it'll be perfect, you know? I don't know exactly 
what, you know, I'm not going to say any of it is unnecessary, but what I'm going to say is I would really like to know that the game that I'm playing is the optimal, like, that is the game. Like, that's the game as is intended. And then there's extra stuff that I can add in. What I, what I don't like, what I worry about, is when it seems like the extra stuff is a patch or a Band-Aid to, to address an issue that there is with the original game. Like, I want the original game to work and to work well and be everything I want it to be. And then you can give me an expansion to increase options or make things more difficult or challenging or easier or, or you know, or somehow different, right? But I don't want um, expansions that are there almost as a triage, you know, that, oh, wait, you know, there's a problem here, so let's throw this in there. Or wait, you know, you could do this. If you're finding that this is too easy, then just add this. Well, when should the game ever be too easy? Like Pandemic has one way to adjust the difficulty level of the game. And it's how many of those cards you shuffle into that deck. One thing. And it's extraordinarily clear how that affects the gameplay. And that's all that you need. You don't need anything else. There's no other adjustments that need to be made ever. It's one thing to set that difficulty level of the game. And I kind of think that 12 Realms has all of these extra things. And to me, there's half of me that says, wow, that's a lot of value for my money. I really appreciate that. And there's another half of me that says, yeah, but what's the mix here? Like, what am I supposed to play with? Like, what, what is going to give me the best experience? And the answer always seems to be, well, you can make it whatever you want. And it's like, well, I don't really have the time for that. Just tell me what it is. Like, what is the game? What is the optimal way to play this game? What, what am I, you know, and why isn't that just it? Like, why is there this other stuff included in the base game? I don't know. That's a bit of a tangent, but it's something that Jim was talking about, too, when he was talking about the, the sort of all of the expansion stuff and the add-ons and the variants and the alternates. It's kind of like, okay, you have this whimsical theme of these fantasy fairy tale creatures going off and battling the monsters to keep the realm safe. And then you have all of this other chrome that's on there that makes it not whimsical anymore, makes it very mathy, makes it longer, makes it, you know, more of a slog. And it's like, you know, like the stone creatures, like, really? Why? Like, why was that necessary? Like, I, I don't understand that. Um, you know, there, there's a variety of creatures and some are tougher than others. And I get that. But... You know, to just say, well, this one has been petrified or this one's made of stone, so it costs double. Really? It's hard enough to get some of this stuff to begin with. And and now it's kind of like, that That to me just kind of, um, that's something that, that I don't always appreciate. I, I wanted the whims, I wanted this to be pandemic fairy tale. Yeah. yeah does, that, does that sound about right to you? Yeah, and you know, the, the way that I played, which was that solo variant without a lot of the extra added in things... Uh-huh. I, I, I even told you the first time I talked to you about 12 Realms, I said, well, it's pandemic, you know, with, for kids. Right. I said, that's exactly what it is because the AI works pretty similar, much the same similar, way. But you don't ever do the um, reshuffle thing, though, right? No, no you don't do no. the reshuffle. But, you know, everybody with their character has special abilities, special mm-hmm, traits. Mm-hmm, yep. So, I mean, for me, it, it just felt like 
a fairy tale version of Pandemic. Which I would be totally cool with. Yeah. But then all this other stuff. Like even all right, let's talk about the monsters, right? So the monsters are are these these individual creatures. There's individual cardboard counters for each monster and you have to kind of find them when the monster comes out so that you have the representation there on the board and you can see the little icons let you know what you need to defeat it right so that's like that's a little bit of fiddliness there right and why because at the end of the day these monsters sit there and wait for you to come and kill them they don't do anything they don't like go rampaging through the countryside now that's abstracted by the threat level rising in in the realm as they're you know you kind of are supposed to picture them you know growing in number and strength and and raiding throughout the land but but basically i you know i i go through this whole process of flipping these cards seeing what the monsters are finding the tokens putting them there so that they just sit there as a recipe waiting for me to come and fill them now i understand pandemic does the same thing in a way you have colored cubes that represent diseases but in pandemic, if you don't deal with them, they're going to pop and they're going to propagate and they're going to do horrible things to you, right? Whereas there's no interactivity about these monsters other than the fact that they just sit there and they contribute to the rise of the threat level. Because isn't it, um, I'm trying to remember, um, it's been a couple weeks since I played it, but it, it, it's like however many monsters there are in the realm, the threat level goes up, right? Yeah, so for every monster token that is still left on the board at the end of every player's turn, right. that threat level increases by one for every token. Yeah. So in the beginning of the game, if you manage to kill two or three monsters and there's still three or four left, I mean, already the threat is moving incredibly fast. That's yeah. why, like I said, I lost terribly that first... I didn't win the game at all, but that, that first solo game, four turns was all I had, and I went, that was the game. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Let's try that again. Did you uh, did you have any uh, questions or concerns about the characters? Um, I had some good thunder tonight, Lloyd. Isn't oh it? yeah, some really good thunder. I don't know um, if we're, we're picking that up, but like I, I I was looking thinking about some of the characters seemed like they had very basic skills like movement. Or well, every character on their character sheet had a basic side, and then on the opposite side mm-hmm. was. I don't want to say an advanced character, but it was a character that had uh, some sort of naughty, I, I guess, a special ability. On yeah, the, like the, a tweak. Yeah, yeah, like mm-hmm. a tweak. On the front side, you would have like anywhere from, I think it's like six to eight different icons, and each icon is a trait. Whereas on the back, you might only have like five or six icons, but, but you have, yeah. but they're beefed up or you have some sort of conversion rate where, uh, you know, you can spend one of these to get something at any time in the game. So you can almost convert a trait to something else when right. you maybe need it. Right. Um, I never played with any of the beefed up characters. I always kept it simple and just light. I, I tried to stay on the side that just showed their traits and you get these little round markers to show each trait. And as you use the trait, you slide it off of the player board. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then at the end of your turn, you do the refresh where you get them all back on. Right. Maybe it's the beginning of your turn when you refresh, but whatever. Um, yeah, I, I kind of found like some of the characters. I, I was looking, I think, at the, the advanced side when I was playing. And like characters like D'Artagnan, like they just didn't seem to be as versatile. Like they seemed... Some of the characters just seemed a little more powerful to me than others, but I can't 
say that with any degree of authority. I haven't played it enough to really know that. So I can't, you know, say that that's definitely true, but it's something that I was a little concerned about. So, all right, overall, 12 Realms, um, beautiful minis, beautiful art, um, fun for kids, definitely. Kids have definitely responded well to this game, though it can run a little bit long. Um, we've already kind of talked about the, the, the issues or questions we have about the game uh, in, in regards to the, the game flow and, and the mechanisms and whatnot. But, um, you know, so overall, I would have to say this is a game that I am happy to continue. Like Jim has it right now because his girls are enjoying it. Um, you know, my kids, not as much. They liked it. But, you know, Jim's two girls really took off on it. So I'm happy to let him play it and, uh, you know, play it with them. And, and I think it's, it's really, there's a niche there that I think this game could have hit. You know, I mean, Forbidden Island is a stripped down version of Pandemic. But it's still kind of, I don't want to say adult, because that would make people think like, you know, inappropriate. But like, it's still, it's not like kid inspirational you know the art is really beautiful and evocative but to me that's still kind of an adult game even though it's it's a stripped down version of pandemic right this game really had i felt the potential to be a pandemic kind of style of a game that is targeted directly at kids and i think that it still could work but I don't know that it works exactly the way it should right out of the box. So, um, you know, I know they're continuing to develop it. I know they're continuing to release expansions for it. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it's anything that I'm going to actively seek out. But I think if they continue to work with this game and develop it and refine it, I think they could make it into that wonderful fairy tale land where you really do feel like you're the nutcracker and, you know, the, the, the fairy princess going off to fight and defeat the, the big bad monsters. Um, so, you know, for me, it's not anything that I necessarily am going to volunteer to pull out and play with my playgroup. But I, I do think there, that there's a place for it for uh, the right audience. What do you think, Lloyd? I, I agree with everything that you said because um, I couldn't help but compare it to Pandemic the entire time that I was playing it because right. it, it felt so much like it. And yet, it for me, I would probably just want to play Pandemic because yeah. of the theme. This would definitely work, I think, for a younger audience because uh, as they come out with new characters that you can play mm -hmm. as, yeah, as yeah. they expand on, I think there's a new Realms expansion that's coming out. Yes, which is there a is. Yeah. New board with new tokens and all sorts of, you know, groovy stuff. Oh, that was something I wanted to mention. The design behind the game is really neat because every realm everything that goes with that realm is color-coded. Right. So the realm board um, could be, you know, this real nice green with green highlights and darker greens, and then all of the monsters and the tokens and the cards and everything associated with that realm right. are in shades of green. And then another realm is, you know, all shades of blue, shades of yellows or orange or, or pink. I don't remember what they all were. But uh, that was what I appreciated a lot about this game. But anyways... Uh, yeah, th this is definitely, I think, aimed at a younger audience. And I would probably agree that it's probably best in that spot from like 10 to 13 years. Like that, that pre-teen, maybe even getting into early teens. Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. don't see a lot of older 
kids playing it because they might be beyond that fairy tale theme. Right. Although, when you play with the max players at six players, one of the players is actually the shadow player. Right. Very much like in Pandemic where you can have the bioterrorist. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. And so... I think maybe as a teenager, it might be fun to say, hey, I'm the Dark Overlord, and I'm going to go squash little the Peter little Rabbit and the small children, and I'm going to cause all this chaos in these fairy tale realms, and nice. take that, nice. see if you can do it. Nice, you know, nice. I, I Get could, off that teenage anger. Right, exactly. I could totally see, you know, they've got their dark hoodie up over their yeah, head, yeah, yeah. they're sitting there, you know, just scowling at the rest of the table. So I don't know. Maybe maybe there is a yeah. good spot for that. I think there's a spot for it. I think I think uh, you know it just there's there's just some things I think that that needed to be streamlined, simplified, cleaned up. Um, you know, and, and and maybe they will in the future. Um, I was just looking at my email. Yeah, the press release is for an upcoming uh, expansion called Bedtime Stories, which is the the newest kind of uh, expansion for the game. So uh, there's definitely more coming. Um, this would, for me, would be a try before you would buy. Yes, Lloyd? Oh, yeah. definitely. I would say try before you buy. It, it's such nice components. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But if you ignore the components and you look at the gameplay itself, like you said, there's, there's, so, issues, yeah. there's some issues and there's so much to add on. And do you really need all of those add-ons? Right, right. Well, you know, uh, it's definitely a, a game that is interesting, and I think you know time will tell whether or not it finds its mark and hits its stride. So that's our review for Twelve Realms. So the last game that we're going to talk about tonight is a game called Madeira. Uh, this is a game that uh, was released by a game company called What's Your Game? Uh, this is a game that people have been talking about for a long time. Uh, it, it was kind of hard to get here uh, in the United States. And it was a, a, a kind of a darling of people like myself who really enjoy heavy games. And so Madeira is a, a game for two to four players... And uh, what it is, is it is a heavy, heavy economic kind of trading game, um, role selection, uh, it's worker placement, uh, just about everything that you could possibly uh, imagine, this game kind of has it in spades. And it really kind of uh, takes this whole genre and I think kind of uh, really... I don't want to say distills it because it's not a simplification, but it takes all of the sort of tropes of the genre and puts them together in this kind of like one kind of ultimate package. So if you're the kind of person who likes this kind of economic, uh, you know, game, role selection, worker placement, um, you know, you're working towards long-term goals, strategy, this is a game that's definitely, I think, for you. Um the designer is listed as uh, Nuno Bizarro Sentiero and Paolo uh, Soledade. Um, and this is a, a game that is just really, really interesting on a lot of different levels. Um, it uses dice imaginatively. It um, has that kind of tried and true worker placement, but you got to feed your people. 
and you got to pay your upkeep, you know, that, that we were first kind of introduced to, I think, as a larger board gaming community in a game like Agricola. Um, it has competition for space a little bit, but not as much as you would imagine. There's not a ton of blocking, but there is a, a sort of a, a first come, first serve kind of a thing that we can talk about later um, in, your, in your action selection, okay? Uh, but but there's not as much blocking as there is in a game like Agricola where there's one spot for you to get reads and if you don't put it there, oh well for you, you know. There's one spot, you know, to go for family growth early in Agricola. Apparently no one else has figured out how to do it yet. <laughs> no one else has figured out, you know, at least in, you know, it's like Stone Age, you know. Two, you know, cave people wander into a hut and they're like, look at that, what happened? You know, and they come out <laughs> with a third one. Um, two go in, three come out. <laughs> two go in, one go out. Anyway, um, so it's kind of got those 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 tropes, you know, of, of board gaming that we've all kind of come to know and love. And it's put together in a theme that, um, you know, Tom Vassell would love, you know, because it's kind of a, it's not trading in the Mediterranean, but it's, it's a heavy kind of economic game. So there's absolutely no way, Lloyd, that we can describe how to play this game on the show. So I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna bother. I'm gonna tell you to go and check out many of the excellent video reviews and kind of playthroughs that have been done about this game because that's gonna give you the true flavor. Suffice it to say, what you have is this kind of simplified version of the explanation. So the game uses dice. And what you're gonna do is there are these kind of nice turquoise, kind of bluish colored dice. And you're going to roll them in sets of three for the number of players that are in the game. And each set of three dice is going to be placed on a board. And on that board is uh, a marker for each player and a set of five tiles. And those tiles are going to provide you with opportunities to score points later in the game in, what, the third round and the fifth round? Yeah, I, I, the first round, the first, third, right, first, third, first and, third, and the fifth. Right, absolutely. And they're going to be very, very important to you. Um, what you're going to do is you're going to select, in turn order, a set of those three dice. And the dice that you select go with a row of those tiles. So sometimes you're selecting dice because of the values on them. And sometimes you're selecting dice because of the tiles that are going to become available. In addition, the row that you select is also going to allow you to refresh these kind of personality tiles that you can accumulate in front of you, which give you special abilities to use during the game. Yeah, the so different guilds that they call The them. different guilds, right. This is just one little board. So if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, wow, so turn order is determined by a selection which also determines refresh of tiles, which also determines the bonus tiles that you're going to try to score, but only three times in the game. And it also has values on the dice which are going to determine what you're going to do later on. Yeah, that's one thing, okay? That's one thing. That's one part of the, of the game. Uh, those dice that you use are then going to be uh, used to place throughout uh, the main board. And the main board is going to be divided up into these kind of areas that are, are both kind of characters and buildings, for lack of a better term. And so each area or region of the board has a requirement. It's either one, two, or three. So if I have a die that's a three value, I can place it on the one 
I can place it on the on any location with a two. I can place it on any location with a three. If I only have, however, a two die, I can place it on a value one. I can place it on a value two, but I can't place it on a value three unless I'm willing to expend some of my resources, in this case, bread. Bread. Why bread does the trick? <laughs> You're like, look, I got a nice loaf of Italian. <laughs> you let me come over. <laughs> I come over to your building. I could do some business. Here's some bread. It's a nice, it's a, it's a nice uh, baguette. You know, whatever. All right. Uh, but anyway, you give bread, and the bread is going to allow you to uh, boost your die value so that you can place on this particular personality uh, card. Those personality cards are going to give you an action that you're going to be able to do later in the round. Um, and that's going to take place through the building, which is kind of underneath the character. So first you're going to select a set of dice. Then you're going to be, in turn order, putting out those dice on these different areas on a personality card. And that personality card is going to allow you to place some of your workers perhaps in the city, which is a whole nother area of the board. It's going to allow you to put workers perhaps on different islands so they can harvest resources or farm. whole nother uh, kind of section of the board. Um, and then there's also uh, uh, personalities that are going to allow you to deploy fleets, like build boats and put ships out, which is a whole nother area of the board. Uh, and then there's another personality that will allow you to go and take colonists, which are going to be people that you had previously working on the islands gathering resources, but now they're going to be pulled from the islands, more than likely. They don't have to be, because yeah. if you have extra people in your supply, you can just use those. But um, you're going to pull those people, and you're going to put them uh, in a colony and that colony is going to produce resources for you every turn and more than likely have something to do with some of those bonus tiles that I mentioned so long ago right. <laughs> talking about the turn order check right then uh, another personality might allow you to place uh, a, a character um, that, that is going to eventually uh, go into this kind of like fortress to help fight off the pirates because in addition to the bluish turquoise color dice, but wait, there's more. There's, there's pirate pirates. dice. Yeah. Yay! And the <laughs> pirates somehow can be wrangled by you and you can get them to work for you and they will go, I guess, and intimidate the personality into letting you do whatever it is you want to do, but then you're not going to be able to use the building effect with the pirate die. Yikes. So after everybody has placed all their peeps and everybody has done all the actions, then what's going to happen? is you're then going to activate the buildings and the buildings are always activated in a set order and the way you activate the buildings is the first thing you do is you pick up all the dice that the players put there and you roll them the cost to perform this building action which could be any number of different uh, game effects sending people to colonies sending people to the fortress uh, allowing you to bake bread um, there's all these different kinds of abilities. Um, uh, getting a guild personality, uh, no, getting a guild personality is a personality, but flipping, refreshing them. Um, this is another thing that you could do. And so all of these uh, building effects have a cost, and the cost is nine. It's going to cost you nine dollars to do anything. But you roll the dice that accumulated on that particular character, and that's what you subtract. So the values are one, two, and three. Okay, 
And when you get that value, one, two, and three, you're gonna roll those. And so if I roll a three, a two, and a two, that's gonna be three, four, five, six, seven, which means taking that action for the player in the building is only gonna cost $2. If I roll, you know, uh, three, three, two, or if I roll, heaven forbid, one, 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 then it's gonna cost me $6, Six bucks, you know, yeah. which is really difficult and hard to come by. So there's a whole economy that goes with the game, which corresponds to a whole market area of the board where you can send your ships to sell the resources that your dudes are farming. So there's all of this going on in this game. If it sounds overwhelming, that's because it is. But to me, it was very overwhelming in a good way. I understood how everything worked. Everything worked the way I kind of expected it to, except the pirates. Pirates were a little interesting. Like, I didn't understand why I could use pirate dice. And um, uh, there's a few other little things that I don't think are super intuitive. But overall, I think the game was actually had a really nice flow and really was something that I found very enjoyable because it made my brain fire on all possible cylinders. So now that we've kind of given an overview of the game here, Lloyd, um, I'm curious kind of uh, what you would have to say about it. Like, because I think the game is so large, it's difficult to review in an audio format, uh, as I think, you know, listeners might be able to tell. So I think maybe what we can do is we can talk about specifics in the game, specific parts, and then if somebody goes and watches a review video, they'll kind of know exactly what we're talking about. Or, you know, hopefully I did a decent enough job explaining it that people could get an idea. But, uh, you know, I just kind of wanted to know from your perspective, what are some things that worked? What are some things that didn't work? You know, what were your thoughts about Madeira? Well, for starters, um, I love the fact that you handed me the box and said, here, why don't you learn this one? (laughs) (laughs) Which is the second game this past week that you've done that with. Yes, indeed. Um... And we had a really interesting experience of trying to start a new game at like 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night with you and me and Carter. Yeah. And we made it through two rounds. And we were like, to try and learn it, Carter was falling asleep. (laughs) And you looked at me and you're like, what do you think? And I'm like, I'm done. (laughs) I mean, it was so heavy. And we're both sitting there drinking coffee. And like Carter's head is on the table. His head's on the table. And he's like, I just want to go to bed. (laughs) He just wanted to be a little boy in his bed asleep. (laughs) I made him play the tune. You You made him play the tune. I didn't make him play it, but you know. Yeah. Because it was already set up for three players and he wanted to go to bed. And And we're like, nope. I know, I know. And I think he just like, you know, he loves to try anything. And I think like halfway through his eyes glazed over. (laughs) They really did. And, uh. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, all right, so go but ahead. So, so yeah, um, we, we reset after so that, we right? did, we, had, we had reset, and you and Joanna and I um, had, had sat down to start a three-player game. And my initial impression, I'll say initial, was we finished the game, and my thought was, yeah, this is definitely a Euro. Uh-huh. And I said that to Joanna, and she, she said, well, do you not like Euros? And I'm like, no, I like Euros. But I said, this is definitely a Euro game where there's too much for you to do, too much for you to keep track of, and I wasn't entirely sure how I felt about the game. But the weird thing is, thinking about it over probably the last week or so since we've finished that game, right? I, I really did realize how many cool little things there are going on. So, like you mentioned about the pirates earlier, and right, I think right. you know 
why does a game like this need pirates? But it was kind of interesting the way that they worked. Because the, the pirate dice that are associated with the game, they end up in this area of the board called the Watch. Right. And that makes sense to me because, okay, the, the pirates got captured and they're being held in the Watch. But if you, as a player, have any of your workers sitting there in the Watch, uh, you can actually have access to those pirate dice. And there were a few times where um, I was the only player sitting there with players or with workers in the watch and I was really able to make use of these dice and kind of use them as extra actions and I kind of like that because it was letting me go to a character and maybe do what the character um, was allowing me to do and because I was going there I wasn't putting one of my own action markers out right. in the building and I did that to you once or twice where I went to a spot where you had already gone twice and now that pirate die was going to have to get rolled along with the two dice that were already there. Now, the interesting thing is pirates are good in the game because they give you these dice and they're like extra actions. But one of the caveats is that throughout the game, anything that you are unable to pay a resource for, for either upkeep or feeding, or if you flat out don't have the money to do something, right. you get pirate tokens and at the end of the game, the person with the most pirate tokens loses 16 points. Which is huge. And that's a huge swing because at the end of the game between you and me and Joanna, the most pirate tokens at that point was like three. Right, right. And we were... <laughs> so we were trying everything possible um, to, to try and get rid of these pirate tokens. But to get back to why I think the mechanic of the pirates works so well... Anytime you send one of your workers into the watch, and there's only one spot on the board you get to do that. Right. But anytime you send them into the watch, they remove a value total of three of those pirate tokens. So they're like becoming a sentinel of the city or something like that. And they're actually fending off the pirates for you. And I, I wasn't really thinking about that until after I'd played the game. So this game really has a lot of cool little things in it that right. work well. They work, I think, very well with the theme. And they just kind of make it, wow, that's kind of cool about the game. Yeah. And it's something, you know, I, I did say initially that I want to play it a couple more times before I really decide yeah, what absolutely. I like about yeah. it. Me too. And yeah. the more I think about it, the more I'm like, yeah, I want to play that again really soon. Yeah. Because you don't want to forget how I to don't play want to forget yeah. how to play it, and and I want to see if some of the things that I missed the first time around can make a bigger difference now that I see how it works that second time around. Yeah, the uh, yeah the other interesting thing about the pirate dice, which you kind of you really stuck me on, is if you go to an area and put one of your dice out and your action marker, and then at the end of the round to use the buildings, you roll those dice, and let's say it's going to cost you six dollars to use the building. Well, if I don't have $6 and I have to pass on using that building, I have to take a pirate token. A pirate token. And that's no big deal. Okay, I didn't have the money. But if pirate dice are among those dice, and I rolled, uh, let's say, uh, a, uh, uh, a one on one of the blue dice, a two on one pirate die, and a, a one on another pirate die, because there are two pirate dice there then that means that I actually have to take pirate tokens equal to the sum of the values of the pirate dice. So now instead of just having to take one, I'm now having to take three. 
and it, it could get even worse than that. And yeah. so that's another interesting like risk reward sort of a thing. And it's it, it's also kind of vaguely thematic to me because as I started playing the game, I started really seriously considering do I want to go to this area where there's a lot of pirate activity because it could cost me, right? Right. In in game terms, it's pirate tokens, which is this abstraction. But in in thematic terms, it's danger. It's like if I go there and I'm the only one who goes there, there could be problems. And that's because when I say the only one who goes there, there is a limiting factor. You can only place as many dice on a character card slash building location as the number of players. So in our game, there's only a maximum of three dice that could be put on each one. And so when Lloyd plopped a pirate die down on there, where I already had a die that I had put of my own there, now I'm actually kind of in trouble. And then if Joanna plops a pirate die down there, well, there's the three maximum. No more dice can go there. No one else is going to come in and help me. And so if we roll one, 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 you know, or one, three, two or something like that, and I don't really have any money, I could really get slammed with pirates. So I kind of, I kind of like that. So that, that's, that's definitely an area of the game that I thought was really interesting. The other area that I thought was interesting is the upkeep uh, area. Now, in Agricola, I kind of hate it because it's so punishing. In this game, it's a little bit easier. You have a Stone Age kind of uh, farm track. It's a, the bread track on the side of the board instead of farms. And the end result's the same. It's going to give you a certain amount of food you're going to produce every round, which is going to help you. And there's a location on the board that is going to allow you to uh, get a, a decent amount of bread too if you have uh, you know workers in that kind of region and you have multiple workers there. Three, I believe, you need. So it's kind of like manageable. But then there's this whole other economy that you have to manage, which is wood. Because wood is used to keep your ships afloat and to keep your fleet maintained. So when you put out ships and you send them either to the colonies or you send a ship to go to the market, um, you're going to need to pay one wood per ship at the end of the round. And if you don't have that wood, guess what? You're going to have to take pirate tokens. And so this is this pirate token thing kind of reminds me a little bit of Cleopatra and the Society of Architects, you know, a little less harsh. And Cleopatra, whoever has the most, is just lost. You're out of the game. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the other players, there's a deduction for. In this game, it's just a deduction, but it's a, it's a pretty hefty deduction. I mean, 16 points is a lot to lose. And we were actually doing such a good job managing our pirates that... If you had even one pirate token, you were going to lose 16 points. You were going to lose 16. Which is really, you know, kind of brutal. So, you know, that that's another interesting kind of thing to try to kind of wrangle and, and manage is that pirate economy. So you have like this pirate economy, you have the, the bread economy, and you have the wood economy. And those things you have to keep going. Meanwhile, you're also trying to gather different resources like grapes or sugarcane or wheat and that's because those are going to be something that you can sell so you can make some money um but you're also going to need wood which for some reason i don't understand i guess uh, thematically it's like you need wood to build houses for the people to come and live in these are like these little character tiles that you can gather Mm -hmm. and you can have them in front of you and they're going to do something for you like say one of them i could just flip and i take five dollars 
Another one is going to give me uh, a discount. Uh, another one is going to give me some bread every time I flip it. Um, you know, another one might uh, have uh, all the pirate tokens that you have. You know, all your pirate tokens are, are cut in half. I mean, that's really sweet. Yeah. Um, but for some reason, these people want wood. <laughs> I don't really know why. Well, I you figured have to that pay out, for them though. with wood. I thought it was like I'm building them a house. I don't know. What What do you think? I I, I kind of figure that out because the way they're they're placed on the board, they cover up different districts in each city. Mm-hmm. So. I thought of it as because, like I said, I've been thinking about the the, the little intricate things in this game. It, it almost seems like you're paying wood because you're building that district, right? Because as soon as you remove that player, not that player, I'm sorry, as soon as you move that that guild character, now there's more spaces in that city for workers to go. So you've contributed the wood right to help build up that district, build up the district. Yeah, kind of made sense to me, and I'm like, yeah, I could buy that instead of you know you're beating somebody over the head with some wood and say, you're going to come work for me now. <laughs> come on, right? You come with me now. You come with me now. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't feel that I need to stretch for the theme in this one um, because mechanically it's so interesting. Um, some of it, though, is, is surprisingly thematic. Like, let me give you an example. Um, some of the fields at the start of the game that produce resources are covered with wood. So they basically have to be cleared. So when you go to gather resources, you're not getting sugarcane. You're getting wood. And you're going to get, you know, you're going to have to clear one, two, or three wood tokens to then reach the level kind of field, the cleared field where you then plant your sugarcane. So if I have a worker there, every time I gather resources from that region by activating a character, because every character that you activate can either use their special ability or... Um, and I'm talking about when you place your dice on a character on the main board. Every one of those people has a special ability that you can do, like put out more workers or put somebody into the city or what have you. But they also have the ability to harvest resources. So wherever you have your little workers on the island, they're going to be able to harvest resources for you. So the first time you harvest uh, resources, you're going to pull a wood. The second time you're going to pull a wood. The third time you pull a sugar cane. And so this is what I mean by like the even the spaces on the board are going to change as the game goes on. And so everything kind of becomes more interesting, kind of more dynamic. Um, also, the, the way that the character tiles that we talked about, they actually move. If you remember during the course of the game, right, Lloyd? And it's, it's one of the ways you can tell how many rounds are left, right? Yes. Is there's this kind of progression of these character tiles. Um, they're going to go out randomly except for one. And the one tile... Uh, is going to be kind of exposed. It's pre-printed on the board every round. And so you have some variability there. So there's all these kinds of different interlocking bits and pieces that I really appreciate that seem to just add a lot to the experience for me. So overall, Lloyd, you know, I have to say because of all of these things that you know I've been talking about and you've been talking about, the different kinds of parts and pieces of the game, the way it fits together... Uh, the challenging nature of the gameplay, like trying to figure out how to handle all of those economies, how to how to do the best that you can to maximize your victory point scoring opportunities in that first, third, and fifth round, um, how to utilize those character tiles to the best of your ability and be able to refresh them, uh, how to not get blocked out of a, a character selection space. Um, how to use the city effectively. We haven't even talked about the city, yeah. uh, which is another really interesting part. So, I mean, overall, this is a game that I think that it really, there's a lot there to explore. And that's why I think I'm so kind of stoked to play it again. 
everything seems to work really well together. What would you say about it? Uh, this is definitely a heavy game, and even though my first experience with it, I was a little overwhelmed, um, just thinking back on it, it, it's a heavy game I want to play again, because I enjoyed the way all the mechanics worked, and every part of the board kind of does something different, mm-hmm. and you know, you've got this great idea where you do have worker placement, but you also have to feed all the workers that you're placing. Mm-hmm. So there's even tough choices whether you want to take a worker out of your stock and put them onto the board or try and manipulate what you already have on the board and rearrange them. So, I mean, there's so much to explore in this game. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to playing it as well. Yeah, you know, the, uh, the, the opportunities for clever play are abundant. Yes, you know, and, and that's kind of the thing that I really liked about it. Um, there's a lot of options, but not like unlimited opportunity. Correct. Yeah. You know, that's, that's kind of the way I'd say it. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of different things you can do, but your window is narrow. You know, it's only going to be open for a little while. And that's because of, you know, the nature of the dice placement mechanic and the limits and you know, all the, the other factors that we've already talked about. Um, you know, the city itself is a really fascinating area, too. You know, we didn't even talk about that. It's kind of hard for me to imagine not talking about it because it can be so powerful. I mean, the city is an area where you can place workers, and one of the actions you can take is to move one of your workers from one district in the city to another uh, location and then move one of the neutral characters, which is a, a white kind of a pawn. And one of the tracks uh, in the city is going to give you money. One is going to give you bread. And the other is going to give you wood. And so, you know, all three of those are sort of the basic things that you need. You need the money for the actions uh, when you activate the buildings. Mm -hmm. You need the bread for the workers. You need the wood for the ships and for the uh, guild tiles that you're going to buy with the personalities that you can use. And so, you know, that whole area of the board and trying to manipulate your people in there, like... I did a really good job of getting all of my kind of workers down towards that wood track. And so towards the end of the game, I was pulling like nine wood every single time that I activated. And so wood was never an issue for me. And as a matter of fact, I mean, that was kind of my saving grace because my wife, um, you know, Joanna was in the lead pretty much for the whole game. But she forgot that she needed wood for her ships at the end. So her choice was take all the pirate tokens and lose 16 points or buy six wood, which I think cost her like $21, 21 bucks, yeah. which was four victory points basically. So, you know, that I beat her by two. So yeah. that one miscalculation on her part ended up costing her the game. And so there's a lot of tension, but it's not, I always felt like I knew what direction I was going in. Like my, my strategy was centered around colonies and guild tiles like that that was kind of what my thing was and my wife was all about shipping and money and you know you had your thing going on the islands and with the pirate dice you were like heavily using the pirate dice and so there's lots of different areas to explore in this game and it kind of reminds me a little bit of dominant species because i felt as overwhelmed playing this the first time as i did the first time i played dominant species but in both cases i really knew that there was a great game in there and something that i wanted to explore you know which is not always the case you know like i think about a game like aquasphere and usually i'm i'm a, I'm a big feld guy i like feld but like that's that's a game of like lots of options and 
almost unlimited opportunities. That's that kind of point salad thing, right? And I kind of like floundered in that game. Whereas this game was was more complex, and yet I felt like I had a better grasp by the end of the first round, second round, you know, that first play with me, you, and Carter right. before his head hit the table, right? <laughs> I kind of felt like I had a grasp. Like, okay, I know what this is about now, and I, I, I've seen the maintenance phase, and I've seen everything, and I, I have some pretty good ideas, you know? And not everything was equally valuable to me, which it, it can be in those sort of point salad style games, you know? Do I want to score 10 points over here or 10 points over here? Well, that's not the case in this game. So there's lots of, you know, lots and lots of, of uh, you know, uh, different ways in which you can go about and paths that you can explore, but your opportunities are going to be limited. So that's why I think I really liked this game. So sounds like it's a thumbs up from both of us, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, we, we've only played it a couple of times, so it's not like we're authorities on it or anything. But, um, you know, I, I really feel that this is a game that I'm really looking forward to playing more. So uh, that's the review from Lloyd and I for Madeira. Well, that's about all the time we have for this, our inaugural episode of Longview Quick Looks, episode one, uh, featuring the games Harbor, Twelve Realms, and Madeira. So I want to say thanks, uh, Lloyd, for agreeing to uh, be on the show tonight and for agreeing to be part of this new kind of uh, format. And I look forward to talking with you more in the future about all these games that I force you to play. It's going to be lots of fun, <laughs> as long as you don't make me read the rules for every single one of them. Well, you know, I kind of feel like at this point I need to pass the torch on to you. You know, I've been the rules guy for so long. and. I'm really enjoying people. I got to be honest with you. I'm enjoying just saying, "Hey, Lloyd, why don't you, why don't you learn this one? I'll get the game, but you learn it." <laughs> I got this review copy. And you go in the co- other room and go, set this up. You go learn it. Go I'll punch it. it out. <laughs> I get to smell all the cardboard and punch it and go. Ooh, and I'm Lloyd sitting over there reading the rules. I hear him sighing, huffing and puffing. But you know, you do you do a great job with yeah, uh, teaching the games too. So it's awesome. Uh, uh, so anyway, I want to uh, thank you for agreeing to uh, be part of this new uh, show, and, and hopefully people are going to like it, and it's going to take off after some uh, initial little bumps and growing pains, and I appreciate you committing to doing that. And, I, you know, I, I, I always like talking to you about games, and since you're like the primary guy uh, that, that I play uh, games with in, in our little game group here, uh, it seemed to be a natural fit. And uh, I want to also uh, say thanks to my son, for Carter, for uh, coming and talking to us a little bit about Harbor. And uh, I look forward to maybe giving him an opportunity to chime in every once in a while as well. Because for a little dude, he, he often has some pretty good insights and, and is pretty good at playing games and at figuring out strategies. I'll give you a perfect case in point. So we were playing, uh, we were playing Roll for the Galaxy, right? And yeah, you're laughing because you know it's true. So we're playing Roll for the Galaxy. And I mean, this is a game that I've played quite a few times with the, with uh, the family and with Carter in particular. And, you know, he happened to get a home world that gave him a purple dye, right? Which is a, a all consumption dye. It matches every color. And, uh, he, early on in his, his exploration phases, he found another world that had a purple dye. And so he had a two purple die setup. Meanwhile, the rest of us are going and we're exploring. We're building up a nice engine. Things are going good. Carter builds a few of those like blue cheapo worlds, right? Mm-hmm. Real quick. And then he just starts shipping. He just starts producing and shipping and producing and shipping. And, um, you know, before we know it, you know, 
I'm looking over at his tableau and I'm like, I gotta warn you people, I'm about to, you know, build my 12th in just a little bit here. The game could be over soon. I look over at my son. He's only got like six or seven tiles. And I'm like, oh man, he's, he's gonna lose. He's gonna lose bad. And I kind of wasn't paying enough attention to him because he was doing nothing but producing and shipping with the stupid purple dice. And as I was, you know, recording this, talking right now, he kind of walked in and whispered in my ear, no, 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 the One World gave me two purple dice. And he's right. So we had <laughs> three right. purple dice, he right? So here we go at the end of the game, and I'm happily adding up my score because I crushed Lloyd. I crushed my poor daughter. I was like, I was, I had a great game. And I was like, everything went my way. And I looked up, like, 42. And then I look over at my son. He's like, 44. And I'm like, What? And sure enough, yeah, he, he uh, I don't know if it was 42, 44, but he beat me by two points. Yeah, he beat you by With two. just a simple little strategy. Like, he latched on. He understood the game well enough to know, I don't have to really build anything else. All I have to do is build a few of these worlds and then just do nothing but produce and ship. And because the rest of us were also heavily into production, half the time he wasn't having to select those roles. They were getting selected for him. So uh, hats off to him. And that's one of the reasons why I'm, uh, I was happy to have him kind of test his toes in the water tonight uh, talking a little bit. And uh, I appreciate him doing that. So uh, maybe we'll have a chance to have him chime in from time to time as well. So thanks to everybody out there for listening. I, of course, want to thank my sponsor, GameSurplus.com. If you are interested in any of these games that you've heard about tonight, you should definitely go to them first. Why? Because their prices are fantastic. And because if they don't have it, they'll find it for you. And their, their packaging is fantastic. Their shipping speed is really fast. You don't have to pay extra for expedited delivery. Uh, I made a, a purchase at another online retailer uh, just this weekend, and uh, I had to pay $3 extra to get the expedited processing. And I'm like, okay, that's a nice service. But you get that with Velma and Amos over at Game Surplus regardless. You're, you're always going to get things delivered really quickly, really excellent packaging. And if you, they don't have what you want, just drop them an email at games at gamesurplus.com. Tell them what you want and they'll do everything in their power to track it down for you and i gotta tell you most of the time they're the only ones that can seem to do that for me so hats off to them and i'm, I'm proud to have them as my sponsor so uh, thanks to everybody out there for listening and have a great night <laughs>